Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I manage the Texas Medical Association's Education Center, where through webinars, publications, and podcasts with See Me To Go, we strive to provide physicians a reliable resource to help you and your practice thrive. My guest today is Yvonne Mooncoon, a TMA Quality Practice Consultant. Yvonne has provided several episodes for residents, giving tips and strategies for preparing for and picking the right type of practice, and getting ready for interviews. Yvonne, thanks for giving us this last episode to wrap up the resident series. What will we talk about today? I am here today to talk with you about planning for independent practice. Okay. In previous episodes, you walked through preparing for practice. You covered the logistics and timeline for completing residency to opening your doors or starting with a group. So what's left to talk about? So some things to ask you. Do you know how much it costs to start a practice, a medical practice? Do you know what are the trouble areas for an employment contract? Do you have any idea what the average price of a practice management system with an electronic medical record system integrated costs? Do you know what the single largest overhead expense is for a medical practice? Do you know how long it takes to get credentialed? Oh, great questions. We still have a lot to cover. So where do we start? You're going to want to conduct a personal assessment, really to understand your personal and professional needs. This is about really looking at your life as a whole and where you want to practice, how you want to practice, where do you want to live? Do you want a solo practice in a, in a rural setting? Do you want to be in a group practice in an urban setting? Do you want to live in California? Do you want to live in South Dakota? So you want to think about where the, the location and what that means to you and your family. Do you have children to consider um, in terms of school systems and resources? A spouse that needs to find a job as well. Maybe you have a uh, a spouse who's also a physician and you know might be looking to start their own practice or join you or, or join another practice. You want to think about the, the finances, the cost of living, what you can afford, and if you've got student loans to pay off, sometimes that can really cut into your income. So you just want to think about those things and your extracurricular activities. You know, when you start your own medical practice, it's not like being an employee and going from one job to another. When you open your practice, you grow your practice and it, and it, and it's based on your reputation and, and, and word of mouth from one patient to another and marketing and things of that nature. It's not so easy to pick up and move to another location when you're opening your own practice. 
So you want to think about all of these things, including extracurricular activities. You know, if you're a person that loves the outdoors and you know loves fly fishing, maybe Missouri is a good place for you to start your practice. If you love the beach, then you might want to think of a coastal area rather than a Midwestern area. So just think about all of those things when you start thinking about where you want to practice, where you want to open your clinic. And the state and the rural and urban makes a difference. The state makes a difference for several reasons. Rural versus urban. In rural areas, you will have a great deal more autonomy. There are less medical professionals in rural areas. You may have less specialists. So you really are the end-all be-all for, for, for medical care in, in, in many places in rural areas. You may not have uh, as many resources available to you um, in terms of hospital or high-tech equipment, things of that nature. In an urban setting, you do have all of those things available to you. The competition will be greater in urban settings than in rural settings. You, you have um, you know, other people to confer with and collaborate with consult with in urban settings and you've got the high-tech you know innovative new stuff academic settings in an urban setting as opposed to a rural setting. Texas is one of the top five best states to practice medicine in. Um, One of the reasons is because of our legislature and the focus on physician-led practices and avoiding or limiting actually avoiding the corporatizing of medicine as much as we can. The other piece is that tort reform several years back made a big difference in the amount of malpractice insurance physicians in Texas are required to carry. And so that has helped out a great deal in terms of expenses. And it's just a really big, nice state with lots of warm weather and lots of different things to do as well. Yes, Texas is a popular state that offers a wide variety of landscapes and lifestyles. What are other key things to consider? So you also want to think about your specialty when you're, when you're looking at your location. So in, um, in the Austin area, we have a, a little town outside of Austin called Georgetown, and it has a little area in it called Sun City. Well, that's a retirement community, and it's very nice. You wouldn't want to open your pediatric office in the center of that. So you do want to think about your specialty, who is going to be your patient panel? Who are you going to be marketing to? Is that area saturated? Are there is there enough patient population to support another physician or a physician? What other competitors are in the area? Are there going to be referral sources? Where are your patients going to come from? And then you also want to be aware of flashy sales pitches. So we're recruiting for a position, I think you're perfect for it, and you love the benefits, and, and it's great weather, and the mountains are terrific. You'll be less than an hour, hour and a half from Denver's nightlife and, and renowned ski slopes. You're going to love it. And then you find out it's in rural county hospital, uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. So make sure that you're uh, really reviewing uh, and doing some research on the areas that you're looking into opening your practice. All right. You hit on lifestyle and geography, um, making sure you're bringing in a specialty or type of practice that is needed or can be supported by the population. And what else? Um, And then you want to consider, are you going to, do you have a plan to open secondary locations? Um, Are you going to want to expand? Um, And if that's the case, then you also, again, you want to pay attention to where you're 
you're opening your initial practice and that you do have areas for expansion that make sense. Um, are you going to be using non-physician providers, PAs, NPs? Uh, are you going to provide ancillary services in your practice? Um, for instance, are you going to be a, a primary care practice that provides uh, services with a registered dietitian, and health coaching, things of that nature? Um, are you going to have call coverage? Who's going to help you with that? Are you going to do it? Are you going to have an answering service? Are you going to um, uh, you know, reach out to other physicians in the area to, to help cover a call when you're not available? You will eventually need to take a vacation. So think about that. Um, and then also research whether there are going to be incoming facilities or other physician practices opening up, things of that nature. And not only medical facilities, you also want to think about are there new schools being built? Are there new industries being built? Is the area you're looking at going to experience a population growth for some foreseeable reason? So do all that research. Then you're really also deciding the exact practice setting. Now, you can go into hospital settings, academic settings. There are advantages and disadvantages. But if you're looking at your own practice, are you going to do a solo practice? Are you going to do a small or large group practice? Are you going to just choose single specialty or multi-specialty? These are all of these things that you need to be thinking about. That's a big first hurdle. So this is really something to be very thoughtful and strategic about. What's our next step? All right. So when you start to put all of these pieces together, you've made the decision on where you want to be, how you want to practice, and now it's time to actually get started. You need to build your team. You went to medical school. You didn't go to business school. You didn't go to real estate school. You didn't go to law school. You went to medical school. And so make sure that you reach out to professionals in all of these different areas. You're going to need to look for an office space that requires a real estate agent that has specific experience with healthcare spaces. You'll need an attorney that understands the business of physicians, the business of medicine. You'll need a CPA. Some CPAs will be very involved and do your payroll and things of that nature. Others, it may just be that you have them doing your taxes at the end of the year. Either way, you're going to want to um, enlist some assistance with that from a professional. A banker, you may need to get a loan to fund your practice. A credentialing partner, uh, somebody that will be responsible for doing the credentialing at hospital facilities and with third-party payers, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, that's definitely something that you don't want to do on your own. The reimbursement and credentialing is your bread and butter, so you want to make sure it's done correctly. And then a practice management consultant that can coordinate all of that for you, just to make sure that no steps are missed and just to have some assistance to, to look at the project from a broad scope. Now, one of the first things you'll do with an attorney is actually establish your legal entity, and that is definitely a good thing to do. It's a smart, prudent thing to do. You have some options, and an attorney will be able to discuss with you your specific situation and which option will be most appropriate for you. Is it a PA, an LLC, a PLLC? Either way, you want to be incorporated in some way, shape, or form because that helps protect your personal assets. You know, if something were to happen and the practice were didn't do well, there were any issues like that, you want to make sure that if you lose the practice for some reason, you don't also lose your home. So make sure that you incorporate and that you do that with an attorney. There are definitely ways to do it online and do it yourself, 
Again, I wouldn't recommend that. I would recommend that you go to an attorney and really talk to them about your personal situation, your goals, all of those kinds of things, and they can guide you into what is the best form of legal entity for you. One of the first things that has to happen when you're preparing to open a practice is a business plan. We need to set up a, a financial pro forma, especially if you're going to require funding from banks. They're going to want to know where the money's going, how it's going to be spent, and, and how you intend on repaying it. So a pro forma sets the expectations for uh, revenue and expenses and for required funding. We do startup expenses, so you know exactly how much it's, not exactly, but close, a good estimate on how much it's going to cost for you to open the practice on the very first day. A pro forma will also demonstrate potential operating expenses, monthly operating expenses for a number of years, and then projections for charges and collections for a number of years. At TMA, when we do a pro forma, we do that for a three-year period. So all of those things are included and and the, the charges and collections are based on MGMA benchmark data. We don't just pull it out of thin air or make it up. It is based on reported data nationally and we drill that down as close as we can to your specialty and region of the country. Now credentialing is a little bit time consuming for you and for your credentialing partner. It can take anywhere from 4 to 12 months to get credentialed and be on the, the different payer plans. The first part of that process is a lot of paperwork that will be required of you. Uh, the credentialing partner will definitely be able to guide you through that process. They do it every day. It is not a simple process. It is not a quick process. So I definitely would make sure that you really enlist the help of somebody who's a professional at that. I can't stress that enough. You're going to need um, a tax ID. To get started, practice address, phone and fax numbers, malpractice insurance, medical license, residency certificate, all of those things need to be completed before you can begin credentialing. So that means that in the beginning, while we're developing the pro forma, you're also looking at a space because you need to have an address and then we help you get a phone number because you need all of that to start your credentialing. So those things are happening, happening simultaneously, not necessarily in one specific order but they do need to all happen at the very beginning. There is a lot going on at one time. I hear from physicians, one of the most frustrating parts of this process is the credentialing. Tell us a little bit more about credentialing. There are different options for credentialing. There are private vendors. There are independent physicians associations. If you join a, a group, they may already have folks internally that do that. Hospitals will have internal folks that do the credentialing for you, ACOs, things of that nature. So there are some different options for credentialing rather than just a private vendor. But again, it depends on what your overall goal and outcome is going to be. Got it. We haven't touched on malpractice yet. What do residents need to keep in mind about malpractice insurance? Now, malpractice insurance is a necessary evil, right? There are different kinds of malpractice insurance. There's claims made policy and occurrence policy. I can tell you that it is something that is confusing at times. With claims made policy, you need tail coverage and things like that. It just depends on whether you've been covered by another policy or had a previous position at a hospital where they covered you and you're now moving into solo practice. The point here is 
you definitely want to make sure that you are reaching out to a uh, an insurance professional who can guide you on the best malpractice insurance for you in your in your particular setting. It'll make a difference in terms of how much it costs you on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis. So again, don't shortcut that. Make sure you have a good insurance provider. Okay, this helps. Now, what about technology? The technology you need is ever-changing in our current environment, but some things still remain the same. Obviously, you still need to have some type of computer and phone networking, you know, whether that's a desktop or a laptop or tablets or a mixture thereof. You, uh, you want to have a, a printer, although we're doing less and less paper these days. We still seem to have need for printers at some point, scanners. The fax machines aren't necessarily fax machines as much anymore. We're using fax servers more often, but you definitely still need a way to fax or transmit documents and information. Telephones, again, can be handsets and landlines. They can be cell phones. A lot of these telephone systems have brains now, right, where they have uh, an algorithm set up for um, answering calls and a hierarchy for routing those calls. And then, uh, again, a large copier scanner fax and a small card scanner that can sit at, at the front desk for things like driver's license or insurance cards, things like that. Credit card machine, a lot of folks hardly ever carry cash or checks anymore. You definitely want to make sure you have that. Software, this could be your practice management system, EMR system, faxing. Again, I mentioned the fax server earlier. QuickBooks, if you're doing the finances yourself or any other software that might be related to telemedicine, remote patient monitoring, any of those other things that you might be considering doing in your practice. Your internet service, you need that to be strong, right? And you need it to be reliable. And Wi-Fi capability in your practice is really quite important, especially if you're going to use tablets or, or laptops. And then as you're going over all the different steps in the technology that you need, you want to consider things like cost. You want to engage in demos with the different EMR vendors, practice management system vendors, and make sure that the, the EMR PMS system you choose is a certified electronic health technology so that you know when it comes time to do your reporting for the merit-based incentive payment program that you are using the appropriate technology and can do that with ease. And that's another huge piece of your EMR system that you want to focus on when you're doing your demos is the reporting capabilities. It's going to be uh, more satisfying for you if you're able to run reports when you need them, as you need them, rather than having to ask somebody to run them for you, rather than being complicated and having to be programmed for you. So ask about the reporting capabilities of the system that you're looking at. And then you want to compare the different systems you're looking at and, and then decide what fits your workflow best. There are some EMR systems that are suited better for certain specialties. I would talk to your colleagues and see uh, what they're using, what they have used, what they've liked, what they haven't liked, and in addition to your own research and your own demoing of the products. Good point on making sure the EMR is certified and that you're able to get the types of reports you want. What's next? All right, now staffing. This is the lifeblood of your practice. Having somebody to answer the phone and greet patients and check patients in and do vital signs and triage your patients and take care of any of the minor procedures that need to be taken care of and patient education and 
billing for your procedures or your visits, all of these things are going to be done by staff. And in this area, uh, you do want to make sure that you consider all the financial and functional and cross-training options because this is, again, who is going to be meeting your patients first, greeting your patients first. When patients call in for the first time to make an appointment, they're likely not going to speak to you. They're going to speak to a member of your staff. You get what you pay for. So be, uh, be open and diligent in the way that you interview and hire. You want to advertise for positions. Oftentimes we will use different um, online systems to do advertising. And then we do telephone screenings once we have those resumes that are submitted through that online system. And once you've done the phone screening and there's mutual interest on both parts, then you'll want to bring folks in to do on-site or in-person interviews, or in this day and age, uh, Zoom meeting interviews, because you, you're really evaluating compatibility and fit in addition to experience. You also want to con- be consistent about your hiring practices, the way that you advertise, your reference checking and background checking, again, to make yourself legally safe and to avoid any issues with potential discrimination and that type of thing. Once you get your staff, it's very important that you retain your staff. It is very, very costly and a huge headache to have to rehire and retrain and go through that whole process again. It's uncomfortable for you, and it actually can be uncomfortable for your patients if they, every time they come into your office, they see new staff members. They they like to get to know who they're going to be seeing uh, in addition to you. So retaining your staff is very important. So you want to make sure that you're offering competitive salaries, that you're offering benefits. Sometimes starting a new practice, it can be difficult to afford to offer benefits. And and many people who start with a new practice will be uh, understanding and willing to start in spite of that. However, it should always be part of your plan to eventually fold in some of the benefits if you intend on keeping those people. Yes, Staff turnover is hard on everyone, and getting through the interviewing, hiring, and onboarding process can be very stressful. Benefits and competitive pay help, but what else is key for keeping staff? You want to make sure that folks have their the tools they need to do their job. Do they have the card scanner at the front desk? Do they have a, a, a laptop or a tablet or, or however they're going to do their documentation? Do they have all those things, all the appropriate supplies? That's one of the easiest ways to keep your staff happy is to make sure that they have what they need when they need it. Give your staff feedback. Let them know how they're doing, that you're pleased with their performance, or that you'd like to see some some changes or improvement in different areas. They want to know how they're doing. Most people generally inherently want to do well, and they want to know that they're doing well. So provide that feedback. It's very important in in terms of morale and, and whatnot. And provide training and continued education. You want your staff to continue learning. You continue learning as a physician. You're required to do CME and that type of thing. There are new advances in medicine um, and technology every day. And so pass that on to your staff and provide them continuing education as well beyond the mandatory OSHA and HIPAA kind of education that must occur every year. Excellent tips. Up until now, we've talked about expenses. What about physicians' income? I know you're worried about how you're going to get paid. Do your research. That's the first thing. And again, we go back to 
the logistics of looking at your location and doing your demographic search and making sure that you're in an area that will be appropriate for your practice. So if you've done all that, you're probably in a good position. You want to consider the whole total package. So it's it's not just what is my salary going to be, but what is the the impact on my life? What is the quality of my life going to be? And if you're going into settings like hospitals or group settings that are already established, that type of thing, you might look at different salary arrangements. So there might be a base salary, which is a very secure feeling to have. A base salary is quite stable. With hospitals, you might do a hospital guarantee. They will do a revenue guarantee. It's also called an income guarantee. I can tell you that this is financial support that hospitals may offer. If you are opening your own practice that's in a location that's nearby and you plan on referring patients to their hospital, they usually will provide a certain amount of revenue every month for the first year. I mean, it's not it's not money they give to you. It is a loan. It's, it's, there's an expectation of you. So just make sure that you read the fine print if you're going to take part in an income guarantee. I would have an attorney review any contracts that you're considering for income guarantee with a hospital and just make sure that you're understanding all of the requirements. Are they going to pay based on RBUs? Is there going to be a base salary? Is there going to do a base salary plus a bonus? How is all of that going to work? What are the conversion factors? What are the formulas? Be sure to understand all of that. So we're talking about employment contracts. What would you say physicians miss most when entering a contract? Contracts um, are made by lawyers and for lawyers. So make sure that you have an attorney review any contract that you are presented with and are preparing to sign. These are legally binding and it's not as simple as a handshake and promise of, of good fortune, right? So you want to make sure that you have an attorney review everything and that if there are any changes made to the documents, that those are reviewed again by the attorney prior to you signing them and that you've given everyone an opportunity to to have their input in the contract and the reviewing of the contract. And that, that's whether it's vendor related, whether it's employment related, it doesn't matter. Um, your lease, all of those things require legally binding contracts. So again, make sure you just, that you've reviewed all of those and have an attorney review all of them. Can't beat that dead horse enough. Let's talk a little bit more about contracts. What should physicians expect to see in a contract? So again, with, a, with, the, with contracts, you're looking at what's going to be expected of you. You know, if it's an employment contract, are there medical staff privileges for you to be concerned about? How will you be paid? What are the working conditions? Will you have vacation time? How will call coverage be handled? All those kinds of things. And you want to see if there are any hidden costs. Are you going to be responsible for association dues or professional liability insurance? Or will the, you know, if you're going for a, a joining a practice or a hospital system, are they going to be paying for those things? You don't want to assume anything. You know, don't even assume that they're going to furnish the office for you if you're joining a practice or a, a hospital. You may have to do that too. So just make sure that you really pay attention to the details. And as far as termination of the contract, Understand what it will take to terminate the contract, under what conditions it would be terminated by you or by your employer or by the vendor, whomever the contract is coming from. 
And if you're dealing with an employment contract, can you be fired? And, and how would that look? How would that work? And is there any notice required of you for leaving? Which generally there is. Can physicians negotiate contracts? You are um, allowed to negotiate contracts if there's an expectation that you feel isn't fair or you disagree with. You know, you could certainly take the time to reply to that that piece of information and suggest a different way of doing things. You know, after you and your attorney identify what needs to be added or deleted or you know clarified, changed in some way, shape, or form. You, know, you can then schedule some type of in-person meeting and you know, express your gratitude. Thanks for letting me, you know, review this and take the time to review it. And I've got a few things I'd like to clarify with you. You just have that conversation. But it is perfectly reasonable to negotiate a contract. It is about business. It's not a personal issue, and you want to make sure that everyone is clear on the expectations and comfortable with the expectations. When you go in for your negotiation, you want to make sure that you have talking points available and ready to refer to so that you don't forget the key points that you want to bring up. And there's no particular order in which you have to bring up certain things. It really is just a matter of going through the contract. Make sure you have notes taken. It's nice if your attorney can be there with you. If not, then you can take those notes and take them back and have a discussion with your attorney. But you want to make sure that you've gotten all of your questions answered and dealt with all of the specific issues that were concerning to you. That's helpful. Thanks. So as a new practice in the area or a new physician to a group, how can physicians ramp up their patient panel? Marketing for physicians is always a little bit tough. It's it's not as easy for physicians to run commercial ads on television and set up billboards beside uh, highways, right? There's a a, a different feel, a different level of professionalism, and a a different way of seeking out your clients, right, your patients. So there are some things internally and externally you can do. Internally, you want to make sure that your staff, that you and your staff always provide a good first impression. Word of mouth is going to be one of your biggest marketing tools, one of your most effective marketing tools. So your, your staff is going to share with their friends and family. Your patients are going to share with their friends and family. So you want to make sure that, you know, that internally it's a pleasant environment that people want to be at and they, so that they'll go out and tell other people. You can also do a lot of networking. Again, with physicians in the area, referral sources, pound the pavement, deliver cards and and cookies, meet the people in your area, the other physicians that might be referring to you or that you might also refer to. Do public speaking. If there's an opportunity at the local hospital or the local group to speak on certain medical conditions or health issues, take those opportunities. Sponsor local sports teams. You can get the word out about your practice by uh, you know, sponsoring a Little League team with your practice name on the back of their t-shirts. That's a, a good way to, to get your name out there and, and, and really get to be known in the community that you're in. Do meets and greets with patients and with folks at the hospital. And again, like I said, visit potential referral sources. All of those are good things to do. You can, you can, you know, look at ads in maybe local papers and, hey, we're open and come check us out. Have an open house and, and have that advertised, that type of thing. Develop brochures and flyers so that those can be taken easily 
and hand it off to other people. Office signage is very important. Make sure folks can see your sign from the road, that they don't have trouble finding your building or finding your office within a building. And again, open houses, announcements, and any type of media coverage is always good. Media folks are, or, or news folks, reporters are constantly wanting a, a little tidbit of information here and there from physicians. Make yourself available for those interviews so that you, know, you can be, again, known in your community. So there are several things. And there are always marketing companies that you can hire that will assist with marketing as well. And what about online and social media marketing? Certainly, online is a huge, huge piece of your marketing. And you want to make sure that you are continuously Googling yourself so that you know what's what's out there about you and your practice. You will be responsible for developing your website. If you have a marketing company, they will be assisting with your maybe your online um, uh, reputation and and search engine uh, optimization, that type of thing. But you also want to realize that social media and review sites don't require your permission to write about you and put information out about you. So you want to review those sites regularly, things like Yelp and whatnot. Claim those sites so that you have some control of the information that is put on there. You want to make sure that address and and phone numbers and business hours, all of those things are accurate. It allows you to put pictures on those sites of your practice or the outside of your practice, things of that nature. And utilize social media. It's okay for your practice to have a Facebook page. You just need to make sure that you remain HIPAA compliant. You can use the Facebook page to remind people that flu season is coming up and that they need to get their flu shot and, and avoid you know specific conversations about specific patients and specific conditions, things of that nature. But there is a way to, to utilize social media that can be very helpful. You could use Etsy and post healthy recipes or different potential exercise routines that might be helpful to some of your patients. So there are lots of creative ways you can use the online resources. Yvonne, in general, what advice do you want to offer for a successful practice? Overall, with regard to starting your practice, whether it's joining a practice, starting your own solo practice, starting a group practice, joining a group practice, be involved regardless. Be involved with the organization. As an independent physician with a solo practice, you hire staff that help you do many things in the office but you don't want to turn it over completely and not know what's going on. So make sure you remain involved to a certain level, that you have regular meetings and the staff are reporting back to you. If you're at a hospital system that you're employed at, be involved in committees and things that are going on. You don't have a say in how things are done if you don't stay involved, right? There's so much that goes into patient care. Seeing our patients, caring for our patients is one piece of it, and then all of the other pieces surrounding it, third-party reimbursement and all sorts of different types of regulations, all of those things matter. And if you're involved in the processes, you'll understand them better and can navigate those better. Review and understand all reports. If you're in, again, a solo independent practice or a small group practice, you want to make sure that you're looking at key practice indicators, accounts receivable, charges, collections, your productivity, numbers of patients you're seeing, things of that nature. You want to maintain internal controls. Again, you have staff that are going to be assisting you with things, but you don't want to give one staff member complete control of the practice finances. 
There need to be some checks and balances within the practice. And make sure that you ask questions repeatedly and constantly of your staff. Uh, if you're not sure on something, ask them. If you don't understand how something is being done or why it's being done, ask them. And ask them to do the same of you. Having an open door policy for your staff to come in and communicate with you is very important. And TMA can help with practices starting up and even existing practices where maybe things just aren't going right. TMA consulting is always a, an option for you to consider for um, a practice setup. The TMB is another good resource for making sure that you have all your licensure and requirements set. Continuing medical education is important. And then compensation data, again, to help you understand kind of what the, the salary ranges and the compensation should be for in a certain area. And I would also reach out to your specialty societies for assistance as well. Yvonne, thank you for providing all of these tips and insights and for breaking down this huge step for physicians coming out of residency and into practice. I appreciate your time and attention and wish you much good luck on starting your practice and delving into your career. For our listeners, if you missed previous episodes in this residency series, you can find them in the TMA Practice Well channel. Remember to like and follow for more help. Until next time, stay well.